Good morning. Today and for the next five to six weeks, as we make our way towards uh, what we sometimes call Palm Sunday, and then after that Easter, we'll be talking a lot about the cross, and because we're talking about the cross, we'll be talking a fair bit about death. Don't be afraid. There is nothing that frightens the modern person more than the idea of dying. Our culture is just terrified of it. And the reason you know we're terrified of it is that we don't like to talk about it. We don't like to talk about it. We don't talk about it with our kids. We don't like to talk about the possibility that we will die. We try our very best not to make any preparations for it. And because of that, we often face it unprepared. We put it off as far as and long as we can because despite the advance of science and philosophy and society and all the enlightenment of the modern age, we haven't been able to get around it. We haven't been able to escape it. It is still that last door that's waiting for us, and we just can't stand that thought. And so we are utterly afraid of death and of even speaking of it. As Christians, it's unavoidable. The symbol of our faith is a cross. The central message of our teaching is the death of Jesus of Nazareth. You can't be a Christian without encountering the thought of dying. And yet we live in a world terrified of it. So terrified of it, in fact, we are so afraid of death, it changes even the way that we live. We live, typically, The modern person lives trying to suck out of life every possible joy and every possible pleasure as much and as often and as quickly as we can because there is this unspoken dread looming at the end of the story that we know is coming that haunts us long before we get there. And so we spend every day trying to live it up. And because of that, the doctrines of Christianity even become difficult to teach to people because Christianity, as we'll see in the lessons that follow, has a lot to say about self-denial, about thinking less of your pleasures and thinking more of others. We talk about giving up things that you like. You say, why? In fact, maybe this is the most basic obstacle to the idea of Christian conversion. Uh, I, I very rarely get asked by someone, convince me of the central tenets of the Christian faith. You know, I prepared my whole life as a student to be able to argue someone into faith, to persuade them of the basic messages, say here's the facts of the resurrection and here's why you should be convinced of it. Nobody ever asked me that question. The question more common, why would I give up anything that I like about my life? Why would I do any less than live to the fullest pleasure and joy or seeming joy that I could have now? Because we know the end is coming. The Christian faith keeps taking us in the opposite direction. Christians not only talk about death, we talk about self-denial. We talk about the possibility that in your life you might have obstacles, that you might have pain, that you might accept 
suffering. 1 Peter chapter 3 is going to be our primary text today, though we'll be in a couple other passages. And there it says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The big point in the verse is suffering for good as opposed to suffering for evil. Don't suffer as a criminal, Peter will say. That's a bad idea. But it might be something God would call for you to do to suffer for good. But we ask, why would we suffer at all? Why, why would we choose a way of living that involves any kind of suffering? And remember, when they speak of suffering, this isn't thermostat suffering. This isn't the temperature is a little bit off from my cozy, pleasant desire suffering. This isn't the mattress isn't quite right suffering. This isn't the car won't start suffering. This isn't nuisance suffering, which to us we think and we treat like life and death. This is the first century of Christian history, and it is suffering that quite often is just a substitute word for dying. It is the deliberate and persistent persecution by the government of Christians precisely because they were Christians. Government that found it easier to put people that objected to their way of life to death than to incorporate them into their culture. Quite literally, when you see the word suffering in the New Testament, don't think inconvenience, think death. Why would any Christian accept that? We can't figure out why we would accept an inconvenience. And yet they are accepting suffering with the very real possibility of death. Why? Why would we take steps in a direction that leads us toward the very thing we fear the most? The answer, as we'll see, is that Christians think very differently about both living and dying. Here's today's riddle, and the riddle we want to think about for the next several weeks. Everyone is going to die. And for what it's worth, everyone is going to live. Those facts are not in dispute. But the order in which you do those things is largely up to you. Everyone is going to die, and everyone is going to live. But the order in which you do those things is largely up to you. The events themselves will happen. But how we live out and tell that story matters a great deal. We think this is a modern concern, but it's not. In fact, it might be the oldest human concern. It is one thing in which modern man has the most in common with our pagan ancestors. The absolute fear of death and the grave. This text comes to us from Isaiah chapter 22, where the prophet is speaking on God's behalf to a people who are living in a way they should not have been living. The prophet's trying to correct them. And he's warned them, and he's told them, you should be changing your ways. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth, and behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. And then here comes the quotation, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. What did the prophet say? He says, God called on you to 
grieve your sins, to show some remorse for what you've done, to consider judgment, and to think about what that means. God called for you to be of sober mind. He says, and yet when I looked, you were doing none of those things. You were throwing a party. You were living it up. And God says, I heard these people shouting these words, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. They weren't denying death, they were just running from it. They said, we know we're going to get there, there's nothing we can do about it, and so let's enjoy today as much as we can. Does that sound familiar? That's not a modern idea. It's as ancient as it gets, and so is God's response. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. You can have all the fun you want, he says, that death that you didn't want to talk about, that dying that you were afraid of, that end of the story that you tried to ignore, it's still going to be there. You didn't change anything. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die doesn't change the dying. This world, as we know it, both ancient and modern, chooses to enjoy every pleasure of this life now accepting the fact that we're going to die later. You only live once, so live it up and just accept that as it is. Only the Christian faith offers an alternative to that. And it's one we have to take very seriously. Paul, for one, understands the logic of what you see above. Let me just say this, because I don't want to be misunderstood. The idea that you have to die at the end of the story meaning that you should enjoy your life now, is a fully logical idea. That's not irrational. That's not crazy. If that's the way the story goes, if the only option is to live a little now and die at the end, that's exactly what you should do. You should absolutely enjoy every second of this life to the fullest. If that's the way the story goes, we'd be crazy not to. Which is exactly what Paul says. In discussing life and death in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 19, he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What is Paul trying to say? He's talking to Christians who have lived this life of self-denial. He's talking to Christians who have accepted the idea that they could suffer and even die in the name of Christ. And Paul says, If this life is the only hope we have, in that order, live now, then die, and that's the end of the story. If that's all that's possible, we are out of our minds. We are pathetic, sad, pitiable people who are giving up the possibility, the only possibility of any pleasure or joy we'll ever have to rush headlong to the grave. He says, if that's the order that it goes in, if that's the way it has to be, we are just pitiful. But of course, as you can guess, that's not what Paul believes. He'll say a few verses later, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, and then he quotes the old pagans from Isaiah, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. 
He says, why are we doing this? A week or so ago, we talked about the life story of Paul, right? We talked about Paul suffering uh, at the hands of the Jews, Paul suffering at the hands of the Romans, Paul suffering, Paul suffering, Paul suffering, Paul suffering. Paul says, I die every day. This way I've chosen to live is miserable. Why am I doing this? If they said, but Paul, we're going to throw you to the beast in Ephesus, he says, I'd have done it. Why? Why am I doing this? If this is the only way the story could go, I live now and then I die, and I throw away my life now, then there's nothing left for me. And this was a really bad idea. He says, if that's the way of it, the old pagans were right. And he quotes them out of Isaiah. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So this might be the strangest thing a preacher tells you this year, but here it is. If you don't believe in what the Christians are telling you, if you don't believe the rest of the story I'm about to try to persuade you of, you absolutely should get out there and live a little. It's the only logical thing to do. If you think that what you have now is the only gain that you could ever have, and that there's one way to live this story out, live now, then die, and then it's done, then of course you should go out there and pursue every pleasure and every satisfaction you could find. The old pagans were right if they were right. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But of course, Christians offer something different. Paul lived the way he lived because he thought there was another option. If life cannot follow death, then there is no reason not to live it up now. But of course, Paul's point is there is something other that we have been shown, which is the same point Peter makes back in our primary text, and we'll stay there the rest of the morning. For Christ also suffered. Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. There were so many things that God accomplished by Jesus, his son, at the cross when he died. So much can be said about it. There's a reason we've been talking about that event for 2,000 years, and we haven't run out of things to say yet. He died there in our place. He died there for our sins. There's a story about morality to be told. There's a story about faithfulness to be told. A willingness to accept any price simply to be faithful to God and obedient to purpose that God has set for a life. So many things we could say about that. And Peter hints at many of them here. But don't miss the last one. He's speaking to a people right up front who are suffering. And he says at the beginning, Christ also suffered. But how did the story of Christ play out? It says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In the story of the Gospel, the story that we have feared must be true is turned upside down, inside out, and reversed. We have told ourselves to fear death because you live now, you die then, and there's no other option. But Christ showed us that life can follow death. That the story can be played in reverse. That it can be reversed in its entirety. That death doesn't have to be the end. In fact, in the story of Christ, it is very much beginning. The Christ who comes up from the grave is very much Christ and very much alive. He is greater. He is more glorious. He is more than he had ever been. 
He is even now ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of God, reigning in His kingdom, the Son of God. After He died, the best was still to come. That reversal of the story is what Christians truly believe about life and death. The passage continues in what gets to be a very complicated bit here. This is verses 19 through 20. You haven't heard a lot of sermons about verses 19 through 20, and you almost didn't hear one today because I got to it and thought, I don't know if I want to cover that. It's weird. But here's what it says. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. It's that first bit. Noah we think we understand, but it's that first bit that's a little tricky. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey back in the days of Noah. What is he talking about? I'll confess, I don't entirely know. I'll give you a couple of options, and one of them's probably right, and I think one of them's more likely than the other, but I'll give you a few options that make some kind of sense. It has been taught traditionally in Christian history that this is describing something, that, if you want to Google it later, called the heroine of hell that Jesus himself went to those who had been sinners before he he lived and died, which would be everybody. He went to those wherever they are in that place beyond the grave and preached to them and gave them an opportunity to receive the gospel and be saved and leave their punishment. Of the options, I think that one's the least likely, to be perfectly honest. Uh, It seems very imaginative and there are some things in its favor, but I can't find much in the Bible that suggests that is the case. Another suggestion that's been made is that there was a preaching that was done, but not to people so much as to demons. And it wasn't an invitation like, hey, you guys can uh, respond as we stand and sing, but rather it was a proclamation. As if between the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus says to all of hell's demons, I did the thing you didn't think could be done. And everything you thought has become untrue. That's certainly possible. I wouldn't rule that out. It makes some sense. But I still think there's actually a simpler way of reading it. And I tend to lean that direction with the caveat that I'm wrong a lot. And you don't have to agree with me. I think what he's actually describing makes more sense. When you read First and Second Peter together all the way through. And listen to the way Peter talks. When Peter talks about speaking by the Spirit... The Spirit leading him to speak in 1 Peter chapter 1, he talks about speaking by the Spirit of Christ. He refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. That what he spoke by the Spirit was the message of Jesus Christ. In fact, he would say anybody in the Old or New Testament, if they spoke by the Spirit, they spoke by the Spirit of Christ. Peter would also say that includes guys like long, long ago, like Noah. In 2 Peter, in the second chapter, he'll describe Noah as a herald of righteousness. The way Peter describes it is that while Noah's got a hammer on one hand building an ark, he is with the other trying to preach to the world that is doomed to die. And he is doing that by the Spirit of Christ. If you take it that way, What Peter says here, while it sounds a little awkward, might be really simple. What Peter may be saying is the same message that Jesus is proclaiming today through Christians 
he was preaching through Noah years and years before. What was the message to Noah's generation? How did they live? They lived the same way we do, the same way the ancient pagan did. They believed to live it up now, to live life now, and someday you'll die. They chose to live in their moment and their place any way they wanted. And because of that, that death they feared did in fact come for them in the form of the flood. But for Noah, it was the reverse. Noah chose to die to the world and then live. Noah chose to be ridiculed, to be mocked, to be an absurdity in his time and place. To deny himself the pleasures that the whole world was enjoying in his time. And because of that, by water, from water, through water, Noah finds life at the other side of that journey. Noah lived more after he died than before. He died to the world first and then began to live. What Peter may very well be saying is simply this. Christ was telling the people of Noah's day the same thing He was telling the people of Isaiah's day, the same thing He was telling people in our day, that this is the cosmic mystery. The thing God has been trying to tell us since the day we accepted death in the garden. That there's another way to do this. You don't have to have all the pleasures you want now and try to evade the grave. The message He has preached all along is the same. You can die first and live later. There's another way this story can play out. And he expresses that through the great symbol of baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to this, you see, that is connected to this. That there's a connection between the ancient story of Noah and the, the gospel that Noah preached all the way forward to the story of baptism that we proclaim today. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as the appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having made subject to Him. What Peter says is, is that in baptism, we are getting a reenactment of the same message that is played out in Noah's story and in every good story you read throughout all the Scriptures. It's the same tale. Modern man and ancient man thinks the same. We come from nothing, we enjoy life for a little while, and we go back to nothing. The story starts in death, it ends in death, and somewhere in between, if you're lucky, you can enjoy yourself a little bit. The gospel story is not the same, and it never has been. The gospel story says that we begin an eternal life, that we are the descendant of the ever-living God. That life and eternity is the beginning of the story. This thing you think now is the highlight of your story is the bottom of it. This life right now and the pleasures you have are the least desirable options at your disposal. That if you enjoy this life as much as you possibly can, you will have gotten the least satisfaction that was available to you. This isn't the top of the story. This is the bottom. That what is to come is far far greater. That's the message of the cross. That's the message of baptism. Did you notice the end of that verse? Pay very careful attention. 
I read this verse since the time I was a child, memorized this verse in Bible class long ago, and because I'm from Churches of Christ, I'd always been emphasized, you memorize verse 21. That's the part about baptism. Never forget verse 22 follows, and a strange thing happens. Baptism also now saves us. How does it do it? He doesn't say it's by the cross. Isn't that strange? When you think of salvation, don't you think of the cross? Isn't that what Christianity believes? He says baptism saves us by the resurrection. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The story of the cross is the low point. Yes, it had to take place. Yes, it was powerful. Yes, it was the righteous for the unrighteous. Yes, all that is true. But Peter says the whole point of the story is that it didn't end there. In human thinking, every story ends at the grave. In Christian thinking, that's the beginning of the good stuff. That what is to come is far better than what we leave behind. That baptism enacts not just the gospel, not just the story of the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but it is the model of every story. It is the story of the cosmos. It is the story of God. Life following after life. Not death at the end of every death. That there's a better way to live. And that's to understand the story in reverse. That's what's accomplished at the cross and on Sunday morning when the cross is undone. That is what is represented for us when we go into baptism. The important part isn't when you go in, it's when you come out. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4 describes it as the beginning of a newness of life. It's the recognition that life begins after death. It's not the thing we have before. Baptism is a proclamation of a faith that I hope you have been persuaded of. That life comes after death not before. Or if we can quote Olseus Lewis, who pithily said it this way, die before you die, there's no chance after. That there's a right order to do this, and it's the path of self-denial. Our initial question was, why would I give up anything that I want in this life? Or the question of the Christians of the first century, why would I suffer now? Because what Christ has taught us is that there are far better things ahead. He taught us to accept the cross of self-denial and by that to begin the life, the true life, that is only in Christ Jesus. Yes, Christianity is asking you to give something up. And it is yourself. It is the hope that you will find in this current life of living and doing and being things all the pleasures your life was meant to have. To give that up and believe there are far, far better things ahead. To die to that and then live in Him. This sermon is all about dying. But you don't have to be afraid. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Our Father and our God, help us to see life as you see it. Help us to know that our story began in eternal life in you. That this moment that we live in is not the highlight of our story, but rather the bottom. That just as Christ put on flesh and dwelt among us, just as Christ died upon a cross, 
there is a future still ahead. Just as Christ was raised from the grave and then exalted, so that at his name every knee would bow and every tongue confess. Help us to believe and anticipate the glory that is still to be revealed in you when we are made like him as we see him as he is. Help us start living now through the symbol of baptism in new lives made and fashioned after the story of Jesus Christ, the true story we should be living. And in whose name we pray, amen. If that's the story you would be living, we call to you to respond to it. You can do it in many ways. We're going to be talking about baptism off and on for several weeks. Uh, We often do. As we get closer to the story of the cross, we'll be telling and of the resurrection. As we get close to Easter, we'll be dialing up the anticipation of the meaning of that story. Anytime between now and then, we'd love to talk to you. We can talk to you now if you want to come to the front. You can text us and say, I'd like to chat over coffee. We would love to talk to you about the meaning of that story and how it can play out in your life. But above all, be thoughtful of that meaning. Be thoughtful of the message of that cross and of the life that is to come. We're going to stand and sing. And as we do so, reflect on the cross and where it should be leading us.